These past few days, the entire world has watched in disbelief and shock as Russia invaded Ukraine unprovoked. The ensuing daily reports of death and destruction, along with the unfolding humanitarian refugee crisis, with many fleeing for safety, causing families to be torn apart, has been heartbreaking to hear and watch. Even with the great courage and admirable tenacity of the Ukrainian people to defend their homeland and fight for freedom against a much larger and better equipped invading force, the odds are not in their favor to prevent an occupation. As followers of Jesus Christ, our prayers should be for the many who are suffering and hurting in Ukraine, for war and hostilities to quickly end, and for peace to come, and also for God to work in the hearts of those in leadership to desire to quickly bring this conflict to an end. We should also pray that both the Ukrainian and Russian peoples would turn to Jesus for hope during this time and for believers in those countries to have the opportunity to share Christ when hearts are spiritually sensitive. In light of what is happening in Ukraine, many have asked me if these geopolitical events are mentioned in the Bible or if what is happening now has any direct bearing in the fulfillment of revealed Bible prophecy events. These are all good questions, so we want to take a look into the Scriptures to see what it says about Russia as it relates to end-time prophecy. And to do this, I want to look specifically at one passage in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 38, as we exposit verses 1 to 23. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Ezekiel chapter 38 as we study verses 1 to 23. Of course, as we study this chapter, since this is a sermon and not a lecture, we also want to draw out some spiritual principles and biblical lessons about the God we worship and how He operates, which we can apply practically in our lives. In biblical eschatology or Bible prophecy, the Scriptures speak of various end-time world powers, one of which is the King of the North. This King of the North is considered by many biblical scholars as Russia and her allies. They will grow strong and seek to attack Israel. In Daniel chapter 11, we are told that the King of the North and the King of the South will coordinate a joint attack on Israel during the future Great Tribulation which will draw in the forces of the Western Confederation led by the Antichrist. Whether this is the same event as the invasion described in Ezekiel chapter 38 is another topic for another time. But it shows us that the King of the North is powerful and plays an important role in end-time events. This means that whatever the results of this current war, in the end times, Russia will still play a major role as a world power in future events. Now let's remember the contextual background of Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel wrote during the time of captivity when because of Israel's continued disobedience, the nation of Israel was exiled by the Babylonians for 70 years. During this time, the city of Jerusalem and their beloved temple was in ruins. But in a series of prophecies, the Lord encouraged His people through the prophet Ezekiel to remind them that all was not lost. There was still hope. The city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt along with the temple, and God would deal with those who have oppressed and attacked His people and would show Himself as the great and almighty one true God of the universe in the process. Now, in chapters 38 and 39 of this book, Ezekiel prophesied about an attack on Israel by Gog and Magog and other nations, most likely happening during the first half of the Great Tribulation. But these invaders would be destroyed by God. Now, before we study chapter 38 in detail, let me just note that one of the most difficult issues in interpreting this chapter is determining the timing of this invasion. For sure, 
Ezekiel is not describing a past historical event from our standpoint because Israel has never been invaded by the nations listed in Ezekiel 38. And God has never destroyed an invading force as is described in this chapter. So the events described here will still take place in the future. Some view this invasion from the north happening before the rapture of the church and therefore before the Great Tribulation, meaning it can happen at any time now. But this is unlikely because of what is described in this chapter. Another view is that it takes place right after the rapture of the church, but before the signing of the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, which marks the start of the Great Tribulation. While another placement of Ezekiel 38 is that it takes place during the beginning or the middle of the seven-year Great Tribulation after the signing of the peace treaty described in Daniel chapter 9, because verses 8 and 11 describe the people of Israel living in safety. This is my view, that it happens after the peace treaty with the Antichrist is signed. Still others have it happening as part of the campaign at Armageddon, or at the beginning of the millennium, or even at the end of the millennium. So it's important to take a look at what Scripture reveals. The first 16 verses of this chapter detail the invasion. I read now verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Here in these verses, the prophet Ezekiel is told the prophecy against Gog. Gog is the person who will head this future northern alliance or northern coalition of nations, the supposed king of the north. Gog is not his real name. It is a title of the ruler of this northern alliance, just like we don't know the real name of the Antichrist. The identity of both individuals will only be revealed in the time of the Great Tribulation. This ruler Gog is from the land of Magog. Most scholars trace Magog's descendants to the ancient people known as the Scythians. And the ancient Scythians settled in the lands that make up the present-day countries of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Ukraine, and today's southern Russia in a territorial area north of the Black Sea known as the Caucasus. Students of geopolitics will know that these countries were part of the old Soviet Union, and where today Russia desires to greatly expand their sphere of influence and control. Gog of Magog will be joined by the princes of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Now let's identify these peoples. Rosh refers to modern-day Russia, not because Rosh sounds like Russia, as some have proposed. It's not good biblical interpretation to say that this is that because it sounds like it, especially when one is a Hebrew word and the other is an English word. Some scholars identify the Rosh people as Russians because of the ancient Ross people who dwelt north of the Taurus Mountains on the River Ra, also known as the River Volga, which is in modern-day Russia. Biblical archaeologist Dr. Clyde Billington identifies the name Rosh with the name Tiras in the list of nations in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. He notes that in the Akkadian language, they tend to drop the T sound if followed by an R sound. So you have Ross or Rosh, and it makes sense since all the other nations in Ezekiel chapter 38 are listed in Genesis chapter 10. If this is the case, the Rosh people or descendants of Tiras lived in the area north of Israel, north of the Black Sea and Caspian Sea, and in the area north of the Caucasus Mountains, 
which is in modern-day Russia and Ukraine. Similarly, Meshech is listed in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as another son of Japheth, like Magog and Tiras. Ancient Greek historian Herodotus placed the descendants of Meshech as settling on the north shore of the Black Sea, while ancient Jewish historian Josephus identified Meshech as the Cappadocians, who settled on the Mostian Mountains near modern-day Armenia. Other modern-day scholars place these people as having settled in what is now the nation of Turkey, which is in the Black Sea region. Now note that Meshech is not the ancient name of Moscow, just because there's similarity in the sounds of the names. This quote-unquote word-sounds-alike interpretation technique should be rejected. Finally, Tubal is the fifth son of Japheth and a brother of Meshech. They settled in the southeast region of the Black Sea in what is now modern-day Turkey. While current geopolitics is such that borders of countries sometimes change, biblical scholars have pointed to the ancient peoples mentioned in this chapter that form the future northern confederation of nations led by Gog that will attack Israel in the end times as living in the current countries of Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. Interestingly, in the special UN General Assembly vote of March 2, 2022, condemning Russia's action for invading Ukraine. 141 out of 193 countries in the UN voted to condemn Russia. However, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan abstained. Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan didn't even vote. Basically, all five countries indirectly supported Russia's action or didn't want to antagonize Russia. Now look at verse 4. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. While the future Gog is plotting this invasion, thinking he and his allies will have a resounding victory, verse 4 tells us it is God who is sovereignly at work to use the evil schemes of Gog to lead to their own destruction. In fact, the imagery here is of God putting hooks into the jaws of animals, pulling them and leading them out to their destruction. God's future surprise attack on Israel is no surprise to God because God is sovereignly at work to make it happen. And my friends, this is a good reminder to us that God is still in control of all of the world's events, even if it may not seem like Anyone knew it would happen. God allows things to happen only when He is ready and in His perfect timing. In the mind of Gog, the king of the north, it was the perfect time for a surprise attack to catch the people of Israel off guard. But nothing happens that God doesn't allow. And from God's perspective, it was the perfect time in His timetable that He was now ready to punish Gog and his allies for their sins. Verse 4 tells us that something will compel them to attack, and they will come out arrayed with the best military equipment, fully and well equipped. Now, it seems rather odd that if we take a literal interpretation of this verse, that an invading army in the future would still be using horses and swords. Why would an army use such primitive weapons in a future invasion? Well, we don't need to look further than to the recent war in Afghanistan where insurgents and soldiers often used horses to great effectivity, especially in that rugged terrain. Or perhaps in a future peace agreement, 
there was a mass disarmament or a condition exists in the Great Tribulation that rendered modern military equipment ineffective. Another possibility is that Ezekiel only recorded the battle gear that he recognized for his time and didn't record all of the modern equipment to be used. Whatever the case in the future, the emphasis of verse 4 is that this invasion force is well-armed, fully ready for their surprise attack on Israel. I believe in the years ahead, regardless of the outcome of the war today, that Russia will only get stronger and more influential. Perhaps they will learn lessons from this current conflict to strengthen their military. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Verses 5 and 6 speak of the allies of the king of the north, or the allies of Gog. Persia, of course, refers to modern-day Iran. It is obvious today that the Russians and the Iranians are strategic allies both militarily and economically, especially after the Islamic Revolution when the western-leaning Shah of Iran was overthrown by the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979. This close alliance will continue into the future. Iran desires nothing more than to wipe Israel off the map, so they will be allied with Russia in this surprise attack on Israel. Ethiopia, or the Hebrew word Kush, refers to the lands of the Upper Nile, which is modern-day Sudan, where the population is 97% Muslim. Libya, or the Hebrew word Put, is the region around modern-day Libya, where also 97% of the population is Muslim. Both nations will join Russia and Iran in attacking Israel. In verse 6, we have the mention of Gomer, who was a son of Japheth. And Gomer is usually identified as the ancient Sumerian people who settled in the area north of the Black Sea and Caspian Sea. But they were pushed out by the Scythians and eventually settled in the west-central part of Turkey. Josephus identifies the people of ancient Galatia with Gomer, which is in modern-day Turkey. Finally, Beth Togarma, literally house of Togarma, was a son of Gomer and mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 3. They're often associated with the ancient Hittite city of Tegarma, which is in eastern Cappadocia in ancient Armenia or modern-day Turkey. So using the current geopolitical countries of today, the allies of Russia will be Turkey, Libya, and Sudan. And today all are Islamic nations and becoming more Islamic. We see this happening to Turkey who is supposedly a secular nation based on its constitution, but is becoming more Islamic. Perhaps with their rejection by Europe, Russia will feel pressured in the future to form their own strong coalition that can match the strength of the West. From these first six verses, let's draw out our first biblical principle. Biblical principle number one, God is sovereign over world history and world events, so we can fully trust Him. God is sovereign over world history and world events, so we can fully trust Him. My friends, this is a reminder and assurance to us that while we may be overwhelmed with everything that is happening, and frankly surprised that there can be war in Europe in the 21st century, God is not surprised, so we can fully trust Him. God is in control, and if He's able to prophesy so accurately thousands of years ago what is happening today, like the alliance between Russia and Iran, 
that we can trust in the accuracy of the biblical prophecies of Scripture, and in fact, the entire Bible itself. Only a God who is in control of everything is able to lead armies out to battle to accomplish His purpose to see their defeat, even if evil men think it is for their victory. We will see this to be true in verses 7 to 16 as we are done identifying the king of the north and his allies, and now we answer the questions of where, when, and why of this invasion. Look with me at verses 7 to 9. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. In verse 7, God tells Gog and his allies, almost sarcastically, to be fully prepared in their surprise attack against Israel, which ultimately will be an attack against God. Because as they seek to wipe out Israel, it will be them who will be utterly destroyed by God in the process. The phrases, after many days and in the latter years, tell us that these events are still in the eschatological future and did not occur in the lifetime of Ezekiel. In fact, the term latter years is used many times in the Old Testament to refer either to the seven-year tribulation period or the millennium. And while we don't have a specific timestamp of when in the eschatological timeline, we know it has not yet happened because we do not currently live in the period known as the Great Tribulation because the rapture has yet to occur. Now, verse 8 gives us some conditions of the land of Israel for when this invasion happens, which indicates that it has not yet happened or will not yet happen soon. Verse 8 talks about a time when Jewish people who have been dispersed around the world start to move to their homeland after a very long period of diaspora. Historically, after General Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jewish people were kicked out of their promised land until the creation of the Jewish state in May of 1948. So this part of the prophecy can be fulfilled today as we see many Jews from around the world moving back to Israel. However, verse 8 and later verse 11 describe the Jewish people living in the land of Israel as living securely and at peace, dwelling safely without walls. They falsely trust someone to provide security for them, not afraid that anyone will attack them. That's certainly not the case in Israel today. I've been to Israel many times, and people walk around with automatic weapons ready for an attack from their neighbors. The entire country can mobilize for war within hours, and they pride themselves in their readiness and in their powerful military. They certainly do not live securely and safely without walls at the moment. That's why I believe that the events of Ezekiel 38 take place after Israel signs a peace treaty with the Antichrist and his Western Confederacy for seven years, which Daniel chapter 9 talks about. That peace agreement begins the period known as the Great Tribulation and will probably encourage even more Jewish people to move back to Israel with the guarantee of peace and security. So it will indeed be a surprise attack because the people living in Israel at that time don't expect it at all. Therefore, we will not experience the events of Ezekiel 38 because as Christians, we do not go through the Great Tribulation. Now, verse 9 says that in God's time, when all the conditions of verse 8 are met in the future, 
a northern force so massive, led by Gog, will come and invade the land. There will be so many soldiers from this northern coalition led by Russia that it covers the land like a cloud. Perhaps the events of the present will teach a lesson to Russia in the future to be fully prepared with enough men and logistics for a successful and quick invasion. Again, this probably means the future Russia will be stronger militarily. Don't count them out. You see, most people thought that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that Russia would no longer be a world power, and they said that Bible prophecy got it wrong. But the Bible never said that the Soviet Union would be the king of the north. It just refers to people groups who lived in certain lands that would make up this future northern alliance led by Gog for Magog. So the Bible is accurate as we see that Russia is still in the news today. And Russian leaders like Vladimir Putin, who believes the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, have been working to rebuild Russia to be a world superpower again, extending control to the countries around them. So while Russia's invasion of Ukraine in the present is a terrible tragedy, it is not part of the biblical invasion Russia will lead in the end times because Israel is the target, and it happens when Israel feels very secure and at peace, which is not the case today. This event is yet to come. Therefore, the events of the present, whether Russia wins or not in Ukraine, will prepare them to grow to be even more powerful for their future invasion of Israel. Now, verses 10 to 12 tell us of the evil intentions and reasons for this invasion by Gog and his allies. Look with me. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Here in verse 10, we are told that while secret to the world, God knows what the king of the north is thinking and planning as the omniscient God. He knows everything, even the thoughts of our minds and the intentions of our hearts. So the Almighty God knows what Gog is up to, and He knows that His plans are evil. You know, as a news junkie, I've watched hours of news coverage of this Ukrainian invasion by Russia, and all the pundits and so-called experts are wondering what Putin is thinking. They are assessing his mental state and how far he will go in this war. Their guesses have ranged all over because they simply can't get into the head of Putin and it frustrates them. However, there is no ambiguity of the intentions of the future king of the north because God already revealed their plans before it even happens and there's nothing they can do to change their own plans knowing it has been exposed this is how powerful our God is. What an assurance and comfort. While God will use the evil plans of God for His glory and achieve His purpose, it is clear from verse 10 that this northern coalition is responsible for their own actions and will be rightly punished by God. You see, no one escapes the judgment of God. Again, verse 11 tells us that Israel is unprepared. They feel so secured 
that they don't even bother building defensive walls to prepare for any invasion or the coming onslaught. Again, what would give the people of Israel so much security to not be on a continual war footing? There must be some sort of future assurance that a great and powerful force will come to their rescue if they are ever attacked. I believe it is the assurance from the Antichrist and the Western alliance he leads that will give Israel this assurance. The Bible tells us they will sign a peace treaty, which is the start of Daniel's 70th seven, or the start of the seven-year Great Tribulation, and that's why Israel lets down their guard. Similarly, that's why today, Ukraine and the other countries bordering Russia want to join a security organization like NATO because they want the assurances that if they're ever attacked, the combined forces of NATO would come to their aid or at the very least serve as a deterrent to Russia. Israel will have this assurance in the future, but it will not deter the king of the north from attacking in the Great Tribulation. Verse 12 tells us that the motivation of Gog and his allies is to capture the material wealth of Israel. They come to capture the spoils and to seize the plunder. Perhaps with security assured and many Jewish people returning and settling back in the land, that the land becomes even more wealthy progressive and prosperous, that it becomes the envy and the desire of Gog and his allies. You see, today the tiny nation of Israel is already wealthy, advanced, and progressive. Think about how much more they will thrive if they have the assurance of peace and with even more people returning back to the homeland. You see, the promised land of Israel has always been very strategic and prestigious at the very center of three great continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. That's why throughout history, many nations have sought to capture Israel. And the king of the north is no different, as they not only want the material wealth of Israel, but they see the strategic importance of this nation in the midst of the land. I read now verse 13. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? In verse 13, we have the mention of Sheba and Dedan, whose ancient peoples settled in the area of what is today the countries of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. They are not in alliance with this northern coalition, and they question what they are doing attacking Israel. In fact, in today's geopolitical world, Saudi Arabia and Iran are arch enemies. As for Tarshish, some scholars believe it is in reference to ancient Tartessus and located in the present-day nation of Spain. The famous ships of Tarshish, often mentioned in the Old Testament, were large ocean-worthy vessels. Other scholars believe it refers to the ancient Phoenician community who had a trading community located in what is now Spain. And this community often traveled throughout Western Europe. And so the mention of the merchants of Tarshish could possibly refer to the many Western nations that are unified under the future Antichrist who signs a peace treaty with Israel. And that's why the West will also join with Saudi Arabia in questioning this surprise invasion of Israel from the north, perhaps jealous with envy also of the material wealth and prosperity of Israel. I read now verses 14 and 15. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, 
all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. Again, verses 14 and 15 further solidifies the identification of Gog as modern-day Russia. We're told in verse 15 that Gog comes from the far north. If one draws a line from Israel due north to the North Pole, the only nation you hit, especially far north, is Russia. Verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I'm hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Although the motivation of Gog and his allies is to take the material wealth of Israel and occupy this most strategic of locations, we're told at the end of verse 16 that God has an even more sovereign purpose for this invasion, and it is for the nations of the world to acknowledge the Lord God. Because as the whole world is watching, God will miraculously save Israel from this surprise attack by an overwhelmingly large force. This reminds me of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, where it says this, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. At the end, it's God's purpose that will always be accomplished. For verses 7 to 16, we can draw out another biblical principle, biblical principle number two. God's plans are beyond our comprehension, and His ways will always be accomplished. God's plans are beyond our comprehension, and His ways will always be accomplished. My friends, we may struggle with all that is happening in our world today. We see the injustice. We think that evil is triumphing over good, and we feel hopeless. But remember that we are only looking through our limited human perspective. Everything that is happening is part of God's plan that is beyond our comprehension, but it is accomplishing His greater purpose to bring Him glory. We don't have to worry that evil will win or that injustice will go unpunished because God's plans and His ways will always be accomplished because what man has planned for evil, God has planned for good. It echoes the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when he tells his brothers these words, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And I hope you remember that wonderful story of how Joseph's jealous brothers sold him as a slave to get rid of him. But he ended up in Egypt and became prime minister and then was able to give his family food when there was a severe famine. And in the process, he saved his family. Now, we may not know in our lifetime why things happen the way it does in our lives and around the world, but we have the truth that while God's plans are beyond our understanding, we can be assured that His ways will always come to pass so we can rest well and be at peace. You see, it's never been about fully understanding. It's always been about trusting in a sovereign God. And we will see this principle fully displayed in verses 17 to 23. I read now verses 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. Verse 17 begins with a rhetorical question from God to Gog. Is that you, Gog? Because if it is you that's going to attack Israel, and it is you, 
Then as verse 18 says, you will experience my fury, my divine wrath. God's figurative face shows that his patience has reached its limit and his judgment is going to be poured out. In history, God has used foreign nations to discipline Israel, like what the Assyrians did to the northern tribes of Israel and what the Babylonians did to the southern tribes of Israel. But in this case, God allowed this invasion from the north to happen, not to discipline Israel, but to bring about judgment upon the invading forces of Russia and her allies. And we know this to be the case because with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, God didn't intervene to protect Israel. But in this future invasion, He does. Look at God's judgment and what it looks like in verses 19 to 22. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. As the invading forces come from the north to attack Israel, God causes a great and severe earthquake to occur. This seismic activity will also trigger volcanic eruptions that rain down superheated rocks and molten ash upon the invaders, as verse 20 tells us. So great is this earthquake that it will confuse this coalition of forces from the north, and in their confusion, they will begin to fight and kill each other. Friendly fire is a very real occurrence in the fog of war. And when you couple this with a great earthquake and volcanic ash falling all around you, there will be mass confusion as everyone runs to save themselves and they are unable to know who is friend or foe and so they begin to kill each other. We see this in the current war where the Russians have to paint a very large V or Z to identify their vehicles and equipment because the Ukrainians also have very similar vehicles and equipment. In fact, the two armies have to wear different colored armbands because they have the same facial features and they speak similar languages. But in this future end-time event, there will be such confusion that the Bible tells us they will turn on each other, every man's sword against his brother. Verse 22 tells us that God sends additional pestilences to destroy this invading force from the north, and it comes in the form of torrential flooding rains, hail from the heavens, fire and brimstone coming from heaven upon the armies of Gog. Who can stand up against the judgment of God? No one, no one can. What you have here is an army that is fully equipped and armed to the teeth, ready to overwhelm an unsuspecting people. And all God has to do is shake the earth a little, and the army is wiped out. The people of Israel are not harmed, and they don't even have time to defend themselves. This is to show the mighty hand of God's protection. God alone saved Israel by His own power. This unique judgment by God to rescue His people will have everyone and every living thing on earth, in the sea and in the air, 
come to recognize the awesome power of Almighty God, as verse 20 tells us. Now, we don't have time to exposit Ezekiel chapter 39, which is essentially chapter 38 with some additional details. And one of those details is that the destruction of this invading force is so utterly complete and devastating that in verses 9 and 10 of Ezekiel 39, we're told that it takes Israel seven years to burn all of the weapons collected. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plunder them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. The Bible tells us there's so much wood that they won't have to use any of the natural resources of the land to make fire. Perhaps this collected resources will be used by the people of Israel as they are in hiding, especially towards the second half of the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant and persecutes the people of Israel. From this invading force, God has given his people natural resources to survive for seven years. The Bible tells us there are so many dead invaders that in verse 12 of chapter 39, that it takes Israel seven months to bury all the bodies. And verses 19 and 20 describes the dead bodies as some sort of buffet for the animals and the scavengers to have their fill. This is a reminder of God's divine and righteous judgment poured out when His patience runs out, and it's not to be taken lightly. Through this miraculous salvation of the people of Israel, through the destruction of their enemies, many in Israel will come to believe in the one true God, as chapter 39 verse 7 tells us. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. The Bible tells us the Great Tribulation, with its many divine judgments, is a time when the nation of Israel will finally acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and turn back to Him. You see, these future divine judgments will serve to remind Israel to change from their sinful ways and to place their trust in Jesus as their Messiah because no one can stand against Him. My friends, in the same way, when we see God's judgments take place in the present and know that it is coming in the future, then we also need to change from our sinful ways and to place our trust in Jesus because we cannot stand up to God's divine judgments in our lives, especially for those who have rejected Him. Now to the last verse of Ezekiel chapter 38, I read now verse 23. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The Bible tells us in verse 23 that through this invasion where God wanted to claim fame, the Lord is the one who ultimately comes out famous. The people of the world will magnify and glorify God. His holiness will be recognized as He deals with the sins of Russia and His allies, and He will be known throughout the nations of the world. You see, this chapter begins with a planned secret invasion of unsuspecting Israel by a fearsome army led by Gog and his allies, and it ends with God saving His people, wiping out this invading force, 
and He alone being glorified. From this, we can draw out our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. No one can stand against God's divine judgments, which display His glory and greatness. No one can stand against God's divine judgments, which display His glory and greatness. This truth should serve as a warning to us, but also as a comfort, a warning if anyone is even thinking that they will prevail against God, and a comfort for those who feel oppressed and taken advantage of, that one day God's divine judgment will be upon those who have mistreated them. And indeed, God will bring about His righteous judgment, even if He is full of grace and mercy and love, because His judgments declare His glory and greatness, so it will come to pass. So, my friends, as you and I see and experience so much suffering and injustice in this world, where the forces of evil seem unstoppable and triumph over good, and you are worried and unsure of what is going on, remember these spiritual principles. Number one, God is sovereign over world history and world events, so we can fully trust Him. Number two, God's plans are beyond our comprehension, and His ways will always be accomplished. Number three, no one can stand against God's divine judgments, which display His glory and greatness. There will come a time in the future when evil men with evil plans will attack God's people unprovoked. But God will supernaturally intervene to destroy and disseminate the forces of evil to accomplish His purpose for His greater glory. And it is in this truth that God will prevail at the end that should bring us hope and comfort in the present. So, my friends, let us continue to pray for God's help by faith and to do the work of the Great Commission He has left us, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ through words and actions and living faithfully even in difficult times until that wonderful day we see Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your words. What a reminder that You will be victorious at the end. So bring to us comfort and encouragement to live and persevere even through these difficult times, knowing that we serve a risen Savior and that if we follow Christ, all things will be victorious. We pray comfort upon those who are hurting and suffering, those who feel mistreated and where injustice seems to reign in their life. Encourage them that in Jesus they will find hope and victory because you will make it all right at the end. Father, may your sustaining grace be upon all the peoples of the world, especially those right now in Russia and especially in the Ukraine who are suffering. Father, would your grace and mercy be upon them and would your hand of protection watch over them. Lord, I pray that your prophetic words would serve to encourage us as we continue to look at the life beyond this so that in you and in the future plans that you have, we find hope and assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.